You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Let's all stand for the gospel reading. I love you guys so much. Do I say that enough? I really, I love you all so much. This is the absolute greatest church ever in the whole wide world. It really is. I had a pastor say to me, he asked me a question I never even thought of in my life. He said, when you preach on Sunday mornings, do you feel like you're at a home game or an away game? And I said, I'm sorry. I have never preached an away game at that church once in my entire life. Like, it's a home game every time. And when I hear the stories of other pastors who feel like they're preaching at an away game, it just makes me want to hug all of you like this. Everybody put your hands out and just let me hug you real fast. I love you all so much. Luke chapter 20. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. I will not make any dad jokes that say they don't believe in a resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. (laughs) Mike Mandia told me that. (laughs) It's the worst, and that's what makes it the best every time. Okay. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children, and they all died. This is the first story of so I married an axe murderer or something like that. (laughs) Reading it now out loud, it's like, did she kill all seven of these guys? Like, why did the fifth one say yes at that point? Like, anyway. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. (laughs) They don't get married because they can't die anymore is absolutely hilarious. I'm just seeing this now like as I'm reading it out loud. But it's a home game, so I I can muse as I read it. Because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses, this is the biggest mic drop for a philosophical debate in the Bible. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We have a Bible study and a half for you today. We're in the middle of a series called Essentials where we've been talking about devotion. It was the first uh, one that we talked about. We talked about devotion and we said that devotion is devotion to God and devotion is devotion to others. So the way that we have a devotional life is not just through books that have a day for every day of the year and they're one page each. The way that we devotionalize is by offering ourselves personally to God in our alone time. How many know that's important to do as much as you possibly can? Okay. It's like we have to have an altar call for salvation. like in the. And then the other way that we devote ourselves to God is by devoting ourselves to the Christ in the person next to you, in your neighbor, in the saved, in the unsaved, the Christ in every person. So devotional life we talked about first, and then we talked about generosity, how generosity is the product of living a devotional life. When you're devoted to God and you're devoted to others, you say with Jesus, this is my body given for you. So we will say, this is my time given for you. This is my talent given for you. This is my treasure given for you. And when we have devotion and we have generosity, it equals witnessing. And we said rather humorously, I listened to it again, and it's just hilarious what we said about public displays of affection, which we will stay away from at this time. But public display of affection is what the church's calling is supposed to be. We're supposed to publicly put on display, listen, not just our affection for God, but we're also called to publicly display God's affection for people who are not walking with him. 
not just each other, which is true, but we're also supposed to be the PDA of God toward other people, showing them in our life toward them how much he wants them, how much he cares about them, how much he's fighting for them, how much he's never left them or forsaken them or judged them or gossiped about them or vented to somebody else about them and called it prayer, but it's really gossip. And all of this is multiplied by learning. All of this is multiplied by learning. One of my favorite texts in the Gospels, Matthew 13, 52. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure that which is new and that which is old. And that's what learning is. Learning is when we connect what we've always known, what we've originally learned, with new, progressive, preceding words of God. We have a tendency to take the first things that we've learned, the first things that affected our life, the first things that germinated in our life, and we have a tendency to just hold them up for the rest of our life as the only things that everybody needs to know. We need to take those things, and we need to treasure them. They're the old in our life, but we also need to receive the new. We need to receive new, receive new revelations. We need to receive new ways of doing family, of doing church, of worshiping, of, of vacationing, of all the things that we do. We're going to talk about this today. We don't want to just be stuck in an old way. We have to constantly be moving forward, but convergently. Every new thing we do should have some of that DNA of the past because the Holy Spirit can show us new things, and he can also show us old things new again. We get familiar with parenting. We get familiar with our spouse. We get familiar with our church. We get familiar with our friend. What if God didn't have to give us new things all the time? What if he gave us new eyes to see old things? What if you woke up and the things that are already in your life felt new again? That's what he has for us. The text that we just read is about hope. It's actually the first Advent text. It's sort of like when you're driving to the beach and when you're not there yet, you can start to smell the salt water a little bit and you know that you're not at the beach yet, but some of the ocean has crept up into some of those little lakes that you're driving by. Advent is kind of doing that right now. Christmas has in the mall has been doing that since October, but it's starting to happen here now in the church where, where the idea of hope the idea of waiting, the idea of anticipation is starting to sneak in. And here's a, here's a text about what will the resurrection look like. But here's what I want to say. If we refuse to learn, if all we do is safeguard and gatekeep what we already have learned, the principles that we've already learned, if they're etched in stone and we say that now that is the best way to live our life and now our job is to defend them and prove to other people that they're the only ones that work, if that's how we live, then our hope will only be categorical hope. Our hope for the future will only be based on what we've seen in the past. But how many know that Abraham hoped against, he hoped against Have you ever read that phrase, Romans 4? Abraham hoped against hope. What does that mean? Abraham first had a worldly hope, a hope based on what he's seen, but he got to the end of that hope, and God began to show him new things that he's never heard of before. It's never been uttered before. The barren shall become pregnant. And in that space, he started to hope for things unseen. He started to hope for things ununderstood. He started to hope for things that can't be explained yet because there's no paradigm for them. How many need a hope that comes from heaven, not just from our past? A hope that is in a category altogether different from any category we've ever known. So we need to be willing to move on from what we know. We need newness coming into our minds, coming into our traditions, coming into our families. Because it's the newness, when it mixed with that which is old, starts to be something other than from the future. That was a lot. Is everybody okay? That was just intro. It's an intro. So let's just, let's have fun with a few verses from Proverbs about learning. Proverbs 1.5. Sword drill. Somebody say amen when you've opened to it. Remember we used to be able to do that before phones? I can't tell if you are playing like Angry Birds or taking notes. I can't tell if John is texting Stephanie right now or if he's taking notes. 
I got to trust. Thank you. I love you, John. Write that down. I love you. <laughs> Proverbs 1.5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. <laughs> Let the one who understands obtain guidance. That is not the way we live. He understands. We don't need to guide him. Let's guide the ones that don't understand. But the Bible is saying, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Once you're wise, the only thing that makes you wise is the reality that you need to keep learning. The more we understand about God, the more guidance we need because God is as safe as he is dangerous. His mercy is as safe as it is scandalous. When we find out that his judgment is his mercy, we're going to need guidance on how to navigate that. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Proverbs 133. This is an astounding verse. Proverbs 133. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure. This is wisdom talking. Wisdom says, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Let me say what this text doesn't say. The one who listens to me, wisdom is talking. Wisdom says, the one who listens to me will not face disaster. That's not what it says. It says, the one who continues to listen to me will not live in the dread of disaster. Because your wisdom will be otherworldly. And you'll know that even in times of disaster, there's another world coming that's going to swallow up the world of disaster. So walking in wisdom, continuing to learn, doesn't mean we won't face disaster, but it means we can get progressively less anxious about our lives. Who could use to be a little less anxious sometimes? Just loosen up the back a little bit. Walk in some freedom that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. We're going to go into that furnace. We think he's going to save us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship you. That's freedom. They're wise. Why are they wise? Because they know a lot of facts? No, because they know that even dread can't swallow them up. Guys are going to make me work for it today. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. In the world... We call fools people who don't know anything. In the kingdom, we call fools people who think they know everything. Let's never be that way. What does Paul say? For now, we know in part. Let's never act like our theology is all the way filled up. Let's never act like our church tradition is the only one that's good. Let's never act like the way our family does Christmas or the way our family does Thanksgiving is the best way to do it and everyone else should do it our family's way. Let's never get there. We only know in part. I want to show you a picture, the, big, the, the bigger one. I want to show you a picture of me and Sophia at the beach. I think they'll put it up on the screen. I look so jacked in this picture. You know what they say, the camera adds muscle. <laughs> one of, and maybe always will be, one of my favorite pictures. This picture for me is a challenge as much as it's a delight. It's Ocean City, Maryland. I didn't know somebody was taking the picture. I was just standing there. We weren't talking. We weren't saying anything. We were just standing there listening to the waves together. And... This picture for me represents something amazing and something dangerous. It represents what works. When I look at this picture, this works. It's not too hard to say that. This is life as it was meant to be. It works. And then, because I'm, I'm learning in, in my formation for ordination I've learned. I've taken a few classes on how to interpret and read religious art. And one of the things you look for is symbolism. And the ocean in this picture started to get my anxiety nerves up a little bit because I sat there and I said, there's my daughter and I, and then here we are standing in front of infinite possibility. Anything can happen. 
the good, the bad, the normal, anything can happen. And what starts to happen to me when I look at this picture is I start to think, I want to get back there and recapture that. Every, every year, I want to take a picture with her there. And in my mind, I see her getting a little taller and a little taller and a little taller. And then she gets married, but she still comes to the ocean with me and not with her husband. And <laughs> he's the one taking the picture. What? Like, <laughs> dude, you hold the camera. Like, Once we find something that works, and I want, I want you to insert your thing into this picture, okay? Like, I want you to take what works for you. And I, all different categories. What theology works best for you? What way of doing church works best for you? What way of doing the holidays works best for you? What, when it happens, makes you feel the way I feel when I look at this picture? This is, this is what I'm striving for in life. This is the thing I want. And, and once in a while, it actually happens. And we need to figure out what to do to always keep making that happen formulate yours when you look at this picture. Because once we find something that works, we judge the goodness and the badness of God on whether or not his goodness or his badness preserves that for us. So once we find something that works, we then start to receive what other people tell us, what the church tells us, what the Bible tells us, what different traditions tell us. And if it preserves that, we call it good. And if it somehow pushes away or messes with this, we call it bad. Because what's happening is we're beginning to idolize the life that works. And we're starting to make it the thing that we define goodness by. When God is meant to be the thing that, see, God is not good. God created good. God is holy. To call him good isn't enough. He created good. He's other than. He's holy because he's the source of good. And when we make moments, snapshots like this, the source of our good and say, if I can just get back to that theology, if I can just get back to that way of doing church, if I could just get back to that way of doing holidays, if I can just get back to that relationship with my children, if I could just get my marriage back to that one point, that one moment, that one time when it was excellent, if I could just get back there and we start to pull into our life all the things that we think can help us get back there and we start to make those things our Messiah and we stop learning. We just want to keep confirming what gets us here. Because have you ever, and this is, if this sounds a little pessimistic, Christianity is not an optimistic religion. It's a hopeful religion. Optimism and hope are at odds with each other. They fight each other. Optimism denies reality to call something good. I know a few people in here have had conversations. Oh, Lord. And... They've said something like, we're content. Now, how many believe becoming content is good? Be- being fulfilled is good. But let me just say this. Let me, let me be the Grinch for a minute. I actually watched the newest Grinch with Sophia yesterday. It's an amazing movie. Christmas time is here. Hallelujah. But let me be a Grinch for a minute. The only way you can claim that you're content with your life is if you have your head buried in the sand and pretend that only what happens to you is happening in the world. Why are, we doing a, why are we doing a Christmas gala? Because of sex trafficking. Because probably right now someone's getting lured into it. Can you be content? You content with your life knowing that's happening? The only way you can be content with your life is if you pretend it's not happening. Optimism denies reality to call something good. Hope, as Fleming Rutledge said, an Episcopalian priestess, that is scandalous, It's also really good. She said, hope accepts the world that it lives in, walks through the valley of the shadow of death with it, and says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It doesn't bury its head in the sand. It doesn't deny or claim or or say, "I, I declare that I'm content. It says, I'm so grateful for the life that I have, but I'm also in mourning for the life that other people should have and don't. And I hope for something greater than the life that I have. And I hope for something greater than the life other people should have and don't. That's what hope is. 
And so every time I think about this picture, it's my brother. I sent it to my brother. He took a picture of it for me, scanned it. It's on my desk. And then my parents got me this one for my birthday. Like everybody knows how much I love this picture. They're everywhere. Every time I look at it, I'm so grateful. But I also know that that moment, every time I want to try to recapture it, it's kind of fleeting. Like for a second, I could get myself back there. But then life says, well, a lot of different things can happen. How many can remember a childhood moment that was almost perfect? You just had that moment where it was just fantastic. You can try to get back there, but you know life and what you know about the adult world is always attacking that. So what do we do? We have to keep learning. We have to keep learning because ultimately what we need is a faith that doesn't try to recapture that, but a faith that can declare what that is pointing to, who that is pointing to. I'm going to tell you at the end what that ocean in the picture means to me now. But as a good preacher, I will create tension and space before I tell you that. Four reasons why we refuse to learn. Four reasons why we, ref why we refuse to learn. The first one is found in Haggai. Chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? They're rebuilding the Jerusalem temple. And God is saying, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory when Solomon built it? How do you see it now? It's less than. It's not as much as it used to be. It's not as bougie as it used to be. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you of this land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Even if the thing you see now is less than the thing you saw before, the only thing that is the same is my spirit is as much in this lesser thing as it was in the most amazing thing. My spirit hasn't left, and so your view of what you have now shouldn't be any different than your view of what it was, unless my spirit is not the thing that you're using to measure beauty by. If the stones were the thing that we measure beauty by, this house is less than. But if the presence of God in it, the first thing that causes us to not want to learn is nostalgia. When you're nostalgic about the past, when your whole life is spent trying to recapture what once was, something new feels like a thief stealing something that was old. ready? This message right here is for grown-ups, just so everybody knows, okay? This is when, when, uh, when the governor, Jesse Ventura, which always makes me laugh, said, he said, as an atheist, he said, Christianity is a crutch for the weak-minded. Here's a message that proves him very wrong. This is tough what I'm saying right now. I'm letting you know as your pastor, this message is going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to take all of Advent to soothe this out. Okay, this is a bomb going off. Boom. It's going to take all of the next six, seven weeks, and we'll begin to iron it out. But just trust me. It's a home game, right? Trust me. When we are nostalgic about the past, when we're always trying to recapture what once was, when we're afraid to ever lose what is, when we want to recapture what once was, when we're terrified of losing what is, everything new feels like a thief stealing something that's old and precious to us. Whether it's our family and the changes that inevitably happen in our family, people move, people split up, people break up, people have ups and downs, the prodigal son leaves, the elder brother's being a pain in the neck, you know, the whole entire thing. When our church, like I said, we're convergent. We're going to do things that means a lot to you and your history. We're going to do things that are brand new. And the brand new isn't robbing what's old. It's just adding to it. And when you add new to what is old, you have a third thing that's called hospitality. You have a third thing that's called the gifts of God for the people of God. But if you ever feel that what is new is robbing you of what is old, I'm telling you right now, that is just the fear to not want to have to learn something new. It's the fear of wanting to just recapture what's always been. 
But God is always leading us into new things. He's leading us into new things. The process, we don't want to change. We go to Ocean City. You can put that picture back up. We go to Ocean City. We stay in this hotel. I could walk straight out of the hotel to that beachfront. I could stand there with my daughter. I could recapture that process. But guess what? Maybe next year that process doesn't work. Maybe next year we're standing in front of a different beach or we're not at the beach at all or things happen with the money and we can't go on vacation, so we're taking that picture on our back deck. Who knows? But the reality is things might change. And if you try to force that process to keep something old from happening, you're going to end up breaking the memory itself. Because it will no longer be a good memory. All it will represent is what you can't have anymore. God wants more for us than that. Thankful for this. Excited about what God has. Grateful for that. But excited for what God has. Second reason why we refuse to learn. This is going to be found in our Psalm lectionary reading. Psalm 145. Portions of it. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your work to another and shall declare your mighty acts, so far so good. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Everything is good. Verse 19, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry. And saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He saves those who call out to him. Does he, though? All the time? Every time? Let's pull our head out of the sand for a minute. Are we going to rescue everybody from sex trafficking? No. Are we going to stop every murder that's taking place right now? No. Are some of them Christians? As if that even matters? Well, the psalm says it is true. And the Bible's always right. The second reason why we refuse to learn is personal encounter. I've experienced God answer my most dear prayer. And so now I'm going to tell everybody that if you pray this way and if you trust enough, God will answer every one of your dearest prayers like he answered mine. But then the next person says, no, no, no. My mom had cancer. The church prayed. We fasted. We gave, and she died. Well, you must have done something wrong, because when I prayed, and the Bible says God saves, well, you're an idiot. You feel that tension? When we've personally encountered something, some of us have personally encountered nothing but abuse. And we can't even begin to think that there's a good God out there. And others of us have experienced really great things in our lives. And they think that if everybody does what's right, everyone can have this. And we idolize personal encounter. The abused person doesn't want to think that God is good because now you need to grapple with all of that theodicy about how a loving God allows these things to happen and it's worth wrestling over, but he's still good. And then people whose lives are really blessed, they just want to put like, you know, the Norman Rockwell paintings up and not turn on the news all Christmas long. And you all know I love Christmas more than probably at Jesus. Fair? Yeah, it's your birthday, but I love it. (laughs) But I'm I'm saying that every time, I talked to Jacqueline for two hours about this the other night because this is a very difficult point. But I want you all to know this. Christmas, let's just start on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, we wake up, we go to my parents, all family, and we eat all kinds of good food. And everyone gets to have drinks except me because I have to come here and preach on Christmas Eve, and no one wants that happening. (laughs) Over there eating the communion bread and all that kind of stuff. No one wants that happening. (laughs) 
I come home, and we finish wrapping gifts while we watch the 1955 colorized version of Alistair Sims' Christmas Carol. And then I may have a sip of something somebody generously bought me for Christmas time. And then on Christmas morning, we wake up and we open presents, and we go to my in-laws. And at my in-laws, we all are dressed up for the first part of the day. And there's hors d'oeuvres, and there's drinks, and there's Christmas music playing, and the extended family is there. Can you feel? Like, this is so nice. And then, and then dinner comes out, and then I'm always waiting for that first person to put on sweatpants because Jacqueline will never let me be the first one to put on sweatpants. <laughs> but this doesn't like to stay in a suit for all that long, especially after I ate a lot. And then we get into pajamas, and we have dessert, and we're all hanging out, and then the extended family leaves, and me and Jacqueline and her 7,000 siblings, <laughs> we, we sit down in a living room of plush, comfortable furniture with more Christmas carols playing, and we open presents, and most years we open them one by one, and it takes three hours, and no one is even annoyed because the clean living room becomes like a living room that had a snowstorm of 12 to 15 inches of wrapping paper. And we all have piles of presents in front of us. And then we have to leave. And we almost get divorced packing up the car with all the stuff because everybody's super energetic after eating and eating and eating and eating and having drinks and opening presents. And Sophia's in a great mood by this point. And we, we get home in the car and we put everything in the living room and we wake up the next day and there's Sophia playing with her presents and we're unwrapping things and there's still more gifts coming in and we still have more things to do. Does that sound nice? I'm not saying don't enjoy that. But every time you enjoy a taste of it, know that someone got sex trafficked. Know that somebody lost their job the day before Christmas. Know that somebody's car broke down just before Thanksgiving. Know that someone got cheated on during the holidays lost a loved one on Christmas morning. Pastor, this is terrible. I know, but it's true. We receive the good to know that it's our job to be that Christmas moment for a world that might not be having it. It's not ours to consume. Look out the window when it snows around Christmas time. See the lights. Feel that warmth. And then say, the vision of what I'm seeing of the snow and the eggnog and the hot chocolate and the Christmas carols and the, what I'm feeling right now, it's good to enjoy, but I also need to be this for the world in January. I also need to be the person who can give this feeling, as my wife so eloquently said today, to the nameless, the orphan, the fatherless, the widow. Receive the good of Christmas. Let it enlighten your soul. Let it pour all over you. But understand, when two different people read that psalm, some people read that psalm and say, God isn't good. And some people read it and say, no, but wait, he is. And the people who receive the blessing that know he is need to be pouring that blessing on people who can't understand how he can be. It's not just our blessings to eat from. It's our blessings to pour out to other people, to be the Christmas ambiance for a world that might be skipping Christmas this year because of bad things happening. Is this making sense? I want it to be super good for you so that you could know how God wants you to be to your neighbor. He wants you to be that feeling that you get on a Christmas morning. He doesn't want you just to enjoy it. He wants you to become it. We're going to keep going. Uh, the, the third reason. This is found in 2 Thessalonians. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus, do you realize how all of these texts have to do with God's future hope? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, listen, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Paul is writing to the church, and he's saying, you've gotten letters to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. And here's a really positive message. The day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object or wor of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by his spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and listen to this and hold to the tradition that you have been taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Somebody wrote to the church in Thessalonica and said Jesus has already come back, and they got very discouraged because, like people of hope, they looked out the window and said, if Jesus has already come back, but this is still going on, if, is this the best it's going to get? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. He didn't come back yet. He didn't come back yet, because when he comes back, it won't look like it looks out there. Nostalgia, personal encounter, and personal security will all cause us to not want to learn. These poor people in Thessalonica got deceived. They got deceived. They got a doctrinal letter, a theological letter in the mail, and it said Jesus has come back. And because they were trained to trust, because they were trained to come under authority, because they were trained to trust their pastors, somebody sent them a letter to the effect that Jesus had already come back. They got burnt by it. They got discouraged by it. They got hurt by it. And now Paul is writing them another letter saying, believe my letter, not that letter. And now here they are. They don't have a New Testament yet. They're looking at what will one day be the New Testament. And they're saying one letter says we've lost all hope, and the other letter is saying don't believe that letter. Okay, I'm going to cloister up, and I'm just going to believe the first thing I learned because I'm never getting duped again. I'm not going to get burnt by religion again. It's happened once, and once is too many. And so now we just stick to what we know, we stick to what makes sense, we stick to the doctrine of our own personal interpretations because that's what sounds the best to us and that's what makes us feel like we won't get duped anymore. And what does Paul say? A very interesting point. Paul says, now how many know, and I'm telling you I believe this in case anyone was wondering, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. In the authoritative word of God, please know that I'm setting you up right now, in the authoritative word of God, Paul says, believe everything that we've told you and every tradition we've handed you through not only our written word, the scriptures, but our spoken word, which we don't have. So the authority, the authority of the Bible, the spirit inspiring this work is saying to us, there are Christian traditions that were given to the early Christians that we still need to listen to, even though they're not explicitly written in the Bible. Kind of feels like a home game right now. <laughs> I said it last week. The church right now is just Acts chapter 375. The story of God and how his spirit moves is still being written. The scriptures, the traditions, our experiences, all of these measure up to what we should be doing as Christians. And in our scriptures, Paul says, there's traditions that we gave you that were given by our spoken word, not our written word. And we, you're going to need them to be able to withstand the negativity coming at you. And we say, well, what were they? They're not written in here. Well, God's given you pastors who study those traditions and say, these line up with Scripture really well. That's why we're going to promote them. This is a lot. Some people told me, don't, don't bring this to them on a Sunday. You don't know Salem. It's the start of a long conversation, but we are so afraid of getting duped. We're so afraid of a Christianity that doesn't look like our culture. We're so afraid of a Christianity that looks Roman Catholic. We're so afraid of a Christianity that looks too emotional. We're afraid of a Christianity where the preacher gets too much authority. Well, somebody said to me, you know, men in collars have really hurt a lot of people. Okay, but men in three-piece suits on TBN haven't? We're so afraid of getting duped, so we stay in the tradition where we feel the most safe, and we start to condemn every other tradition as being idolatrous, because we're afraid of getting duped. We're afraid of getting pulled into idolatry. We're afraid of these things. 
if we refuse to learn and we only stay in what is ultimately safe, our future hope will just be based on the tiny little world that we live in. And let me tell you, that world is not big enough for the kind of hope that we need. We need to be uncomfortable. We need to push the envelope. We need to take a chance. We might get duped. We might get duped. But I believe, and quote me and tell me if I'm wrong, we might be struck down, but not destroyed. Persecuted, but come on. Not forsaken. It might get bad, but it won't be final. Because that's the promise. Christianity is not a call to action before it's a promise. I'm going to come back and every deception I'm going to make right. And finally, because everyone's just dying to get out of here. Here we go. And finally, Matthew 22. This is the same story that we just read from Matthew's gospel. This is the story of the people who came to Jesus with the axe murderer wife who killed seven men and they all had her. And whose, whose wife will she be? And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is far more rude to them for asking this question. And it says, but Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I love Matthew Jesus. Luke Jesus is very nice. I love Matthew Jesus. You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they, ne they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, I love that, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God, not I was the God, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and since I am, they're obviously still alive. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now listen, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished, but clearly the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't. They weren't astonished. They've lost all ability to stand in awe because they don't want to back off of what they know. They don't want to learn something new. Here's the thing. Sadducees had an interesting relationship with the Romans. The Romans were saying, you guys keep peace, and if you keep peace, we'll keep Caesar away from you, and we'll keep your home safe, and we won't come and rape and pillage you in the middle of the night. Good? Good deal? So the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. Why? Because a resurrection would prove that there's a Messiah that's not Caesar. And if they started preaching that, and everyone got excited that Caesar can't kill us, guess what Caesar's going to want to prove? I can kill you, and he's going to try. So the Sadducees have a vested interest in maintaining their authority and their control by not learning something new. So mom and dad... You could come up with a doctrine that scares the hell out of your children and get them to hang home for a while. Pastor Bill, you could preach enough messages that inflict fear on your people of what happens if they don't give to the Thanksgiving baskets and Jesus comes back when they didn't give. <laughs> There's a way to find a doctrine that gives you authority and control. And once you get the authority and the control, you never want to come up off that doctrine. So nostalgia, trying to recapture the past. Personal encounter, assuming the way that we felt it is true for everybody. Personal security, I'm not going to change what I believe because last time I did that, I got deceived. And authority and control. So now, back to this picture. How do I look at this? And know that this beauty is under attack every day. One phone call. One comment from some dumb kid in a sandbox. <laughs> Yo, I love you. Like, I'm, I'm telling you right now, one of these days you're going to keep me here until 2 o'clock because you just keep, I love it. One, one spoken word to a three-year-old that snatches innocence like that. One hidden YouTube commercial that shouldn't have been on the kids' one. five-year-olds walking around with cell phones. I said cell phone. That's from like 1990. Cell phone, mobile phone, smartphone. What do we do? I got another picture from a bishop. Oh my God, it's an icon. Oh my God, it's religious artwork. It's idolatry. 
this is what I feel my calling in life is. This is Christ the King religious painting for the day that I'm going to get ordained. And I want you to see something. He's dressed in royalty, but he's holding a book. And the book says, the good shepherd who lays down his life for a sheep. What you see in Jesus is never an either or. It is a both end. He's dressed in beauty day at the beach. The robes of Jesus, the beauty of God. But what about the tragedy? He's also the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. His hands have bloody stains in the middle of them. The both end reality of Jesus. Salem, we're called to represent the priestly kingdom of Christ, but not let that priestliness get so in our heads that we will stop laying down our life for our brothers. And for those of us who only understand what it means to be trampled in the kingdom of God, that which is trampled gets to wear priestly garments. Well, my life has been beautiful. My life has been blessed. My life has been amazing. Well, guess what? You need some good shepherdness then. My life has been nothing but a beatdown. My life has been nothing but abuse. My life has been nothing but getting cheated on. My life has been nothing but bad financial decisions and bad financial repute. Guess what? The least of these is the greatest of these in the kingdom of heaven. You got robes on and you don't even know it. So all the beauty of God in here is met with the reality that it could go bad, but that reality is met with the resurrection. And all the ugliness of death and decay and tragedy is met with the priestly robes of Christ saying, I'm going to raise it all up again on the last day. Let me make one side comment. If you think religious icons are idolatry, then throw out every single picture you have of your family in your house. How come we get to hang pictures of our wedding day, but people freak out when we hang paintings of Jesus? Do you worship the pictures on your desk at work? Do you bow down to them? Do you worship them? They remind you of a good God. So does religious paintings. Everybody chill out. Everybody chill out. It preaches a sermon without having to use words. But that's what our calling is. Our calling is to be people who understand there's beauty in this world, and we need to capture it, and we need to tell people about it. We need to share it with people, but we cannot be so decked out that we forget that we also have to bend our knees and get lower than the lowest person sometimes. And if you meet somebody, or if you are the kind of person who's been shoved into the dirt, we're here to tell you that you are also wearing priestly robes because people shoved in the dirt are the greatest of these and the only kingdom that actually matters. And that is what gives meaning to all of our other pictures. So for me, that ocean used, when I first, the thought first popped into my head, the ocean scared me because it was me and my daughter, who I love with my life, standing in front of the endless possibilities of what could go right or wrong. And then when Bishop Mike sent me this, and I saw the tragedy and the resurrection all in one person, I realized that ocean in this picture is not the endless possibilities of all the bad things that can happen. My daughter and I are standing behind the infinite love of God. And that love of God can swallow up anything that happens, will swallow up everything that happens, and will make it right again. That's our hope. And I am going to push us this year to understand that we're not called to be an optimistic people. We're called to be a hopeful people. Our anchor holds beyond the veil. Our anchor holds beyond what can be seen, beyond what can be calculated, beyond what can be measured. And if we don't move into that, we're not living the full Christian life. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Have fun at LTG groups this week, everybody. In a couple weeks, we're going to have so much liturgy in this house, we're not going to know what to do. So I want to read that prayer again that I prayed last week. Is that okay? I want to read that prayer before we come to the table. This prayer is the prayer of paradox. It's the prayer of beauty, the prayer of tragedy, and the prayer of hope all at the same time. And if we're going to be real, we have to be real enough to say there's so much beauty of God breaking into our earth, but there's so much brokenness still, and they both exist And we need a hope that can 
go beyond that tension. We need a hope that can go beyond that tension. And so let's pray. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming a human being so I do not have to pretend to try to be God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming finite and limited so I do not have to pretend that I'm infinite and limitless. I thank you, crucified God, for becoming mortal so I do not have to try to make myself immortal. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming inferior so I do not have to pretend that I'm superior to anyone. I thank you for becoming weak so I don't have to be strong. I thank you for being willing to be considered imperfect and strange so I do not have to be perfect and normal. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for being willing to be disapproved of so I do not have to try so hard to be approved and liked. I thank you for being considered a failure so I do not have to give my life trying to pretend I'm a success. I thank you for being wrong by the standards of religion and state so I don't have to try to be right anywhere. We're accepted more than we're right. We're loved more than we're right. We're healed more than we're right. I thank you for being poor in every way so I don't have to try and be rich in any way. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for being all of these things humanity despises and fears so I can accept myself and others in you. Holy Spirit, as we get ready to come to your table, I pray that we would come to Christ, the high priest, and the good shepherd at the same time. We come to a meal that is wrapped in liturgy and song and beauty, but it's also a meal of brokenness and spilled blood. And I pray that as we come to your table, we'll be walking toward and in, your, in the baskets. We will see the brokenness of the world we live in. But as we consume that brokenness, I pray that we'd be reminded that one day you're going to swallow up death and you're going to make things right again. And I pray that this meal, which is first our gift to you, we offer you these gifts. We offer you this bread. We offer you this cup. And we pray that you take what we're offering you and sanctify it in your Holy Spirit, that it might become for us the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that as we offer ourselves to you, in the same way you would sanctify us, that we may be worthy to come to your table and leave here as your table, food for the world. In your holy, precious name we pray. And everybody said, the ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.